0: Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. I'm in Philadelphia, so I thought I'd do a Philadelphia-themed Whistle Stop this week. Although arguably last week's Whistle Stop with Wendell Wilkie was Philadelphia-themed because he was nominated in Philadelphia. But never mind, it's July 13th. 1798, and a disheveled man is walking the dusty road from Philadelphia on his way to an undetermined location below the Potomac River in Virginia. A widower who just lost his wife to yellow fever, the man was penniless, reportedly feeding himself and his children on broken vittles from a wealthy neighbor and relying on small donations from acquaintances to buy firewood and snuff. Sometimes the donations uh, would come from people seeking political office. Uncamped with a haunted look, He might have seemed a pitiable figure, but there seemed little to pity in this fellow, especially if he were a member of the Federalist Party, which at the time controlled Congress and the White House. The man's name was James Thomas Callender. He was a journalist working for the Republican cause, and he was a drunkard. His enemies called him a scandal monger. He was a Scotsman of whom nothing good is known, wrote John D. Lawson in American State Trials, an account of Callender's celebrated prosecution under the Sedition Act in 1800. He had the pen of a ready writer and the brazen forehead of a knave. That summer, Callender was on the run from the Federalist enemies who had threatened him for savaging their cause. Assassins had visited his house on two different occasions, he said, though given his reputation for befouling the truth, that could have meant nobody visited at all. But it was true, however, that assassins would have had reason to visit his house and poke a hole in that brazen forehead. Callender had been responsible for ruining Alexander Hamilton. You know him. He appears nightly at the Richard Rogers Theater. And he did so by initiating the first public sex scandal in American politics. But before we go any further, let's have a word from our sponsor. The Obama administration is in the last six months, and maybe you're wondering what it's like to work in the Obama administration. White House. Well, worry no more. Slate's Working Podcast is doing an entire mini-season featuring people who work in different corners of the White House, from the people who open mail to the president's head speechwriter. It's a great series. I recommend it. Go listen to it. It's the current White House. If you're a fan of campaign stories, this is what it's like to actually work in a White House. Thomas Callender is one of history's villains, so there are very few accounts of what he looks like, but there are many characterizations of his look by those who did not like him. William Cobbett was one fellow who didn't like him. He was a famous Federalist writer and a Callender enemy. He described him as, quote, a little mangy Scotsman who has a remarkably shy and suspicious countenance, loves grog, wears a shabby dress, and has no hat on the crown of his head. I'm not certain whether he has ears or not. He leans his head towards one side as if his neck had a stretch and goes along working his shoulders up and down with evident signs of anger against fleas and lice. The put-upon pilgrim, making his way from Philadelphia to Washington, had abandoned his four children to the care of a friend. He seemed in a hurry to shed his widowerhood and pick himself up a new wife, telling a friend that after his trip south, he hoped to find a, quote, hardy Virginia female who could fatten pigs and boil hominy and hold her tongue. During his trek south, Callender learned that he was still being hunted, so he had to turn down an ally's offer of a carriage for fear that riding in a carriage would make him an easy mark for villains to spot him. So he walked, or more accurately, he weaved. Outside of Leesburg, Virginia, he was arrested, drunk, and loitering outside of a local distillery, perhaps trying to get a contact eye. He was charged with vagrancy, and the report of the event is described as follows with shaved head and greasy jacket and nankeen pantaloons and worsted stockings. This is a possible Halloween costume available to any one of us. Callender did have one good thing going for him, though. His most influential patron was Thomas Jefferson, the Vice President of the United States. Jefferson would help Callender back on his feet, and then, in turn, Callender would lend his pen to Jefferson's cause in the election of 1800. Here's another characterization of Calendar. His business was to gather all the political scandal, all the foul abuse, all the libels, all congressional speeches, to misrepresent good acts, to attribute false motives, to digest the scurrility. That again was written by John Lawson, John D. Lawson, who wrote the history of Calendar's sedition trial. We'll get to the sedition trial in a moment. Calendar was Jefferson's attack dog, the most famous of the gladiators of the quill as they were called, and the philosopher-president's secret weapon. And ultimately, however, Calendar would turn on the master of Monticello and reveal Jefferson's most personal secret. The election of 1800 is considered one of the ugliest campaigns in history, and we can thank James Calendar for that description. He's the one who helped make it so, carrying out attacks on behalf of his patron Jefferson that were so severe that the incumbent president, John Adams, threw Callender in jail for his writings. But Callender was more than just a fierce partisan. As a journalist, he revealed that a system built on virtuous gentlemen was run by men who were not so virtuous. When James Callender crossed the Atlantic and arrived in America on May 21st, 1793, he was already a man on the run. he attacked Samuel Johnson, the famous writer and the King of England, once referring to the King of England's government as, quote, a mass of legislative Putrefaction. Facing sedition charges, Calendar fled, landing in America, where he was free to unbuckle his talents. He wrote this: "It was the happy privilege of an American that he may prattle and print in what way he pleases, and without anyone to make him afraid." Calendar's career would test that proposition. Calendar secured one of four official stenographer posts in the new Congress when it moved to Philadelphia. And This was not long after he arrived on the run. Uh, Newspapers paid stenographers back then, not the government, which meant that the scribes were constantly accused of embroidery, making their foes sound dumb and their allies sound brilliant. Because newspapers were partisan uh, at the time, the newspaper wars of the 1790s, in which Callender was a dashing figure, uh, were ferocious. The golden age of America's founding was also the gutter age of American reporting, writes historian Eric Burns. Papers were partisan, not impartial, and editors attacked each other in the street. They cursed each other with prolixity and backwards-running sentences. They seemed to have the typesetting equivalent of unlimited minutes when it came to using insults and synonyms found in the thesaurus. Their enemies were depraved, worthless, vile, intemperate, wicked. Accusations of drunkenness were frequent and accurate, as were the charges of corruption and debauchery. Of course, Callender fit in nicely in this gritty world and came to have a reputation for clattering among the empty bottles and carrying a foul odor. He was once ejected from Congress because he was, quote, covered in lice and filth, according to a report that may even have been true. At Federalist gatherings, they put him into their songs. He was lampooned along with a Republican editor whose name was Ben Bash. Tom Callender's a nasty beast. Ben Bash, a dirty feller. They curse our country day and night, and to the French would sell her. Thomas Jefferson testified to the ugliness of the trade of the newspaper business when he described what he looked for in a good editor. He lamented that such a person would have to, quote, set his face against the demoralizing practice of feeding the public mind habitually on slander and the depravity of taste. Defamation is becoming a necessary of life insomuch that a dish of tea in the morning or evening cannot be digested without this stimulant. Even those who do not believe these abominations still read them with complacence and betray a secret pleasure in the possibility that some may believe them, though they do not themselves. That sounds just as high-minded as we'd expect from the author of the Declaration of Independence, but it's total blarney. Jefferson was fine with slander, feeding the public need for low entertainment and fact-free denunciations just as long as they were aimed at his rival's. He spent much of his time supporting or arranging to support newspapers that did just that. Like today, in the age of our founders, one person's depravity and slander was another person's fact. What Jefferson would have roared about, his rival Alexander Hamilton, would have applauded as plain truth. Each side in the debates of the early republic thought they were the hero in a morality play of the infant republic. This is why it got so hot so fast. They were righteous and saw themselves as setting the precedent for a new nation. This is unlike the righteous infantile and heated debates of social media that clog. Our modern age, the stakes in these verbal wars were high. These men thought they were determining the course of the nation and of free mankind. And that, of course, gave them the excuse to employ any means to meet their ends. There was, of course, a tension in this. If the presidency was to be run by virtuous statesmen, there was no greater test of virtue than how the would-be presidents behaved in their private acts. By funding the scandal and encouraging them, Jefferson and others failed at what they would have said was the first test of character, doing the right thing when no one was looking. That they were funding these scandal in order to make sure a man of virtue held the office of the presidency doesn't erase the offense of the fact that they were enlisting the scandal to say uh, questionable things in the first place. Okay. So when George Washington leaves the White House, he, he warns against the, quote, spirit of party that would turn the disputes... Between men like Jefferson and Hamilton into a kind of permanent state of combat that would exist regardless of the men, also known as what we have today. It was too late, though. By the time Washington was warning against this, the debate between the Hamiltonian Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans over the best way to interpret the Constitution and the authority it gave to the federal government was already, you know, hot and well underway. There were rap battles going on regularly. The argument. Between the two formed the basis of the two-party system in America. Calendar sided with Jeffersonian Democratic-Republicans, and the Democratic-Republicans believed in a limited federal government that would allow the states to determine their own future. Just to confuse the bejesus out of you, it's basically the limited state-oriented view of the modern Republican Party. So the Democratic-Republicans, linked to Jefferson, were known as Republicans until 1828 when they would become the Democratic Party with uh, Andrew Jackson. And in keeping with this state-centered view, they believed Congress had the principal power in national affairs since it was closest to the people and the states. A too-powerful executive supported by a large army would encourage monarchism. Republican distaste for the monarchy, of course, then inspired their support for the freedom-loving revolutionaries in France over Great Britain's king. So that's them. Then Hamilton. Hamilton and the Federalists aligned their thinking with the interests of the major trading centers on uh, the Atlantic seaboard. And Hamilton supported a stronger central government because he believed that only if the federal government was strong could it inspire the confidence necessary to have a working economic system that spread over an extended geographical space. Jefferson and Hamilton were both members of Washington's cabinet. And they carried out their office disagreements through proxies. Hamilton supported the Gazette, the newspaper, the Gazette, and Jefferson supported Philadelphia's National Gazette. The Gazette of the United States and the National Gazette were conceived as weapons, not chronicles of daily events, writes historian Burns. In this context, Jefferson noticed Calendar because he was on the hunt for allies in his battles against Hamilton and the Federalists in advance of the election of eighteen hundred. By the end of Washington's administration in 1796, there were scarcely 30 papers that could be classified as Republican on the Jefferson side, compared to about 120 that were Federalist on the Hamilton side. Newspaper patrons like Jefferson built lists of subscribers and solicited donations and provided anonymous tracts for publication. Secretary of State even leaked confidential documents to his favorite editor and begged his friend James Madison to attack Hamilton in print. Here's Jefferson. Nobody answers him and his doctrines will therefore be taken for confessed. For God's sake, my dear sir, take up your pen, select the most striking heresies, and cut him to pieces in the face of the public. Hamilton complained about Jefferson's backstabbing in print. And here he is. Can he, Jefferson, reconcile it to his own personal dignity and the principles of probity to hold an office under the government and employ the means of official influence in opposition? In other words, how is he Secretary of State and then also opposing that government through the press? Hamilton even complained to President Washington. Jefferson wrote Washington a 4,000-word defense in which he denied any involvement with the newspaper writing. So categorically, he might as well have denied that he ever read a newspaper. Of course, it was a lie wrapped in a high-minded philosophical 4,000 words of hand-waving and prancing around. As Cy Shepard details in his book on media bias, not only had Jefferson supported the opposition press, he'd written some of the articles himself. So, it shouldn't surprise us that the man with the sandy hair and the thoughts of Palladian architecture in his head met with a disreputable calendar in Philadelphia in a print shop, Snowden and McCorkle, in the summer of 1797. Now, It may not surprise us, but it certainly would have surprised the public because Callender had built his reputation in part on savaging the president for whom Jefferson had just been serving as secretary of state. Here's Callender. If ever a nation was debauched by a man, the American nation has been debauched by Washington. If ever a nation has suffered from the improper influence of a man, the American nation has been deceived by Washington. Let his conduct then Be an example to future ages. Let it serve to be a warning that no man may be an idol, and that a person may confide in themselves rather than in an individual. Attacking Washington was just a starter course (laughs) for Gallander and his abuse that he heaped on the Federalists. The summer of his meeting with Jefferson, he was the talk of drawing rooms for what he had uncovered about Alexander Hamilton and Alexander Hamilton's exciting adventures in the bedroom which are uh, a very important part of the um, Hamilton musical, which has uh, swept the nation. Callender was different than other writers. He literally named names, dropping the convention at the time, which was to only use the first and the last letters of a person's name when you were writing about them. And according to Callender's biographer, Michael Drury, He had a, quote, complex and contradictory character. He was self-righteous, strongly puritanical, with regard to personal morals, insufferably proud, with a deep and abiding mistrust of human nature. Callender's view was that only virtuous leaders could ensure the continued vitality of the republic, and only by watching them incessantly could their virtues be assured. His rival, Federalist writer William Cobbett, agreed saying, quote, once a man comes forward as a candidate for public admiration, every action of his life, public or private, becomes the fair subject of public discussion. What Calendar uncovered about Hamilton started before Calendar had even come to America. In 1792, the 36-year-old Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton started an affair with the 23-year-old Mariah Reynolds, while his wife and children were away. Reynolds, had claimed that her husband had abandoned her and her daughter, and she asked Hamilton for enough money to get to New York. It required a harder heart than mine, Hamilton wrote, to refuse it to beauty in distress. When Hamilton delivered the money in person, Mariah offered a quick repayment. I took the bill, wrote Hamilton, out of my pocket and gave it to her. Some conversation ensued, from which it was quickly apparent that other than pecuniary consolation would be acceptable. Reynolds' husband, James, soon learned about the affair and the quick non-pecuniary consolation, and uh, he initiated an extortion scheme. Or, as some have suggested, Reynolds, uh, the husband, initiated a long-planned extortion scheme that had been mapped out before Mariah Reynolds ever knocked on Hamilton's door. Hamilton paid, and he continued the affair. Uh, ultimately, he would pay about $1,000, which is about $24,000 in today's coin, and then, on december fifteenth seventeen ninety two future President James Monroe, then a senator from Virginia, heard about hamilton's uh, payments to james Reynolds and then and, and confronted him. The information had come to Monroe from a prison cell in Virginia where Reynolds was serving time for another swindle involving unpaid wages to revolutionary War veterans. Reynolds tried to limit his days on bread and water by trading information for a lighter sentence he He let it be known that he could quote, make disclosures injurious to the character of some head of a department. Armed with the accusation, Senator Monroe, Speaker of the House Frederick Muhlenberg, and another member of Congress began a short and secret investigation. They accused Hamilton of using his position to enrich himself through speculation, and they threatened to tell the president. Enraged, the Treasury Secretary invited the three men to his house to show them the letters that proved he was innocent of malfeasance. He had simply been guilty of adultery. So after a sweaty, intense exchange, the three men were satisfied by Hamilton. There was a wall at the time between the public and private lives, and the three men who were investigating with Hamilton had it really in their interest to keep that wall nice and strong because they were all public men too. And whether they were doing a little shilly-shallying on the side didn't matter. They uh, believed that the wall between public and private should stay so Even though Monroe was a Jefferson ally in the daily newspaper battles against Hamilton, he and Jefferson didn't use the material that they learned in this private investigation. Monroe and his two colleagues put all the papers related to Hamilton, including some of his correspondence with James Reynolds, in a safe place. Not safe enough. Monroe said he had entrusted the correspondence to a, quote, a respectable person in Virginia. Some historians think it was Jefferson. He might have been responsible for ultimately leaking the news four years later in 1796. Remember, this is activity Hamilton was engaged in in 92. It comes out in 96. But the consensus view is that the culprit was a guy named John Beckley, a Jefferson ally and clerk of the House. In, in 1796, Federalists had pushed Beckley from his post, and he wanted to get back at their leader, Hamilton. So he leaked everything related to the affair to our friend, Mr. Callender. The full story, written by Mr. Callender, appeared in something called The History of the United States, 1796. It's a dull name for a volume, but it's kind of like a brown wrapper that obscured what was inside. Here's a bit of it. This great master of morality, Callender accused, though himself the father of a family, confessed that he had an illicit correspondence with another man's wife. Callender labeled James Reynolds a procurer, which is to say a pimp, and he said that since... Being a pimp was the lowest of all human character traits. Hamilton's commerce with Reynolds, the pimp, brought him lower than Hamilton's mere adultery did. But Callender didn't stop there. His bigger charge was corruption. He didn't buy that Hamilton's private excuse was that he was just engaged in an adultery extortion scheme. Calendar again. So much correspondence could not refer exclusively to wenching. No man of common sense will believe that it did, hence it must have implicated some connection still more dishonorable. On July 5th, 1797, Hamilton wrote to Monroe and the two members of Congress who had been with him during the private inquiry and asked them to make public their original conclusion that there was nothing amiss in his public conduct while he was Secretary of the Treasury. Two of them complied, but Monroe did not. Hamilton was not happy, and he accused Monroe of leaking to Calendar in the first place since Calendar's report had included original documents Uh, from Monroe and Hamilton's meeting in December of 1792. Hamilton and Monroe nearly met in the field with loaded pistols, according to one account. Colonel Monroe rising first and saying, Do you say I represented falsely? You are a scoundrel. Colonel Hamilton said, I will meet you like a gentleman. Colonel Monroe said, I am ready. Get your pistols. Both said, We shall, for it will not be settled in any other way. The fight was broken up by, wait for it, Aaron Burr, who would later kill Hamilton in a duel, which took place after Burr had represented Mariah Reynolds in her divorce proceedings. And just to make it even more fun, Hamilton, before he was dead, would later defend a journalist accused of printing false statements about President Jefferson. You get the feeling that there were only about half a dozen men in America in those early days. Hamilton thought his public virtue on the question of financial corruption was all that mattered to his future or to regular people. So two months after Callender's article, unable to get Monroe to vouch for him, he defended himself against the corruption charge with a 95-page pamphlet that foreshadowed its cumbersome argument uh, with the winding road title – Observations on certain documents contained in number five and six of the history of the United States for the year 1796, in which the charge of speculation against Alexander Hamilton, late Secretary of the Treasury, is fully refuted, written by himself. Hamilton denied any improper speculation with James Reynolds, but confessed, quote, My real crime is an amorous connection with his wife, so now he's made it public. The old codes of honor, which had governed private affairs, uh, were being undone by this new political system that was fed by the fighting popular press. So here we have a cultural shift in this warfare that Hamilton's a part of. This newspaper back and forth is now colliding with the the public-private wall we talked about earlier. Hamilton would, of course, get caught between the two. He was exonerated by the small group of lawmakers, but when his sins became public, he was vilified. He warned if this trend continued, quote, the business of accusation would soon become, in such a case, a regular trade, and men's reputations would be bought and sold like any marketable commodity. Hamilton uh, misread his audience. (laughs) You have widened the breach of dishonor by a confession of the fact, one New Yorker wrote him. Republican papers said he was trying to legitimize adultery by writing his long tract, that he had, quote, violated sacred promises. They railed against the injury. Uh, He did to his wife by his admission and concluded, as public moralists often do today, that to be dishonest in one sphere is necessary to be dishonest in another. Quote, if a man will rob his family of their peace and enjoyment, if he will abandon himself to the vilest connections, if he will place daggers in the breast of a virtuous wife and stab the reputation of his children, where are the bonds of honor to vouch for his fidelity in any other transaction? Of course, more songs and dog roll followed. Dear Colonel, did you never hear, if you did not, I think tis queer, that only fools do kiss and tell, even though they tell their story well. An anonymous penman named Virtuous caricatured Hamilton, I've been grossly and injuriously charged with guilt. I have been charged with being a speculator, whereas I am only an adulterer. I've not broken the Eighth Commandment. It is only the seventh which I have violated. To defend Hamilton, the Federalist... Came after calendar with a hammer. In the name of justice and honor, how long are we to tolerate this scum of party filth and beggarly corruption? Working into a form somewhat like a man to go thus with impunity, said the Gazette of the United States. Do not the times approach when it must and ought be dangerous for this wretch and any other, thus to vilify our country and government, thus to treat with indignity and contempt the whole American people, to teach our enemies to despise us, and cast forth unremitting calumny and venom on our constitutional authorities. The publication suggested that Calendar's behavior had made him entitled to, quote, the benefits of the gallows. The pressure from the Federalists is what drove Calendar on that long walk from Philadelphia into Jefferson's Virginia. Calendar was gleeful, though, Uh, about what he had goaded Hamilton into. If you have not seen it, he wrote Jefferson, no anticipation can equal the infamy of this piece. It is worth all that 50 of the best pens in America could have said against him. This blow was about more than a simple presidential election in 1800. In an ideological battle for the direction of the new country, Callender had just struck mute the most articulate advocate for the other side. If Jefferson had been as concerned about the press as he said... He should have been repulsed by Callender's behavior, even if it did undermine his rival Hamilton. That would have been the virtuous thing to do, right? Be repulsed by the thing that you say you find so repulsive. Instead, he was drawn to Callender, supporting him as he headed south. Newly installed in Virginia, Calendar complained to Jefferson that Republicans owed him. He also simpered that he was, quote, belied and stared at, as if I was a rhinoceros. Well, if you were wearing nankeen pantaloons and worsted stockings and a greasy jacket, of course people would stare at you like a rhinoceros. Escalating his bath of self-pity, he exclaimed, I am in danger of being murdered without doors. Imagine what it would be like to be murdered with doors. Jefferson loaned him 50 bucks, which helped him get on his feet until he could secure a place at the Richmond Examiner, edited by Jefferson's very close associate, uh, Meriwether Jones. Jefferson continued to loan calendar money and asked his friends to do the same arguing to Madison that it was, quote, essentially just and necessary that Calendar should be aided. Jefferson also sent Callender encouraging letters, elevating his sufferings. The violence which was mediated against you lately has excited a very general indignation in this part of the country. Jefferson wrote about the arrest of Calendar outside the distillery. Letters like this deepened Callender's fondness for the master of Monticello, and that fondness and connection on an emotional level will be an important part of our tale later. In the election of 1800, President Adams was defending his tenure against Vice President uh, Jefferson, who had won the office in the last of the elections in which the vice presidency went to the runner-up. The election was a test of whether the new nation could handle the power as two factions fought. Or would the faction in charge use the tools of power for personal ends, corrupting the experiment so soon after it had started? And remember, we're in the post-Washington years, so everybody's, like, freaked out whether they can handle it on their own without Washington running the show or being involved. Jefferson had said to Adams at one point, Were we both to die today, tomorrow, two other names would be put in place of ours without any change in the motion of the machinery which was how it was supposed to work. But that machinery hadn't really been tested. And everything about the election of 1800 suggested that both sides were trying to tear down the leaders of the opposite party with the implicit view that were their enemies allowed to succeed, they would in fact destroy the machinery. And maybe it wasn't implicit. Maybe it was just explicit. That the machinery would bust no matter you know, if the wrong kind of person was there. So neither Jefferson uh, nor Adams were campaigning for the job outright. But both, of course, urged their friendly writers to support them in the papers. Jefferson and the Republicans set up what were known as a correspondence committee. And that correspondence committee would write friendly articles in the papers, basically sort of press releases. Um, And Jefferson then helped us to distribute those writings, including purchasing the papers in bulk and making sure they went to uh, influential gentlemen who could spread the information. Here's Jefferson. This summer is the season for systemic energies and sacrifices. Jefferson wrote to Madison. The engine is the press. Every man must lay his purse and his pen under contribution. Callender was crucial in this campaign, trading secret letters with Jefferson. Jefferson didn't sign his. You will know from whom this comes without a signature, he wrote. Secrecy, of course, was crucial, as Callender's biographer, Dury, points out, because, and here's Dury, quote, evidence that Jefferson was supporting from his own purse the notorious defamer of Washington, Adams, and Hamilton would have destroyed his carefully constructed image of being above party intrigues. Callender, a writer of such drive that he often talked about scrawling himself into headaches, wrote a 183-page pamphlet called The Prospect Before Us. And in working on this, uh, The Prospect is spelled where the S looks like an F, so I'm constantly thinking of it as The Prospect Before Us, in which, anyway, he savaged. Adams. Quote, the reign of Mr. Adams has hitherto been one of continued tempest of malignant passions. Callender was kind enough to send a copy to the president, and future historians, he predicted, quote, will inquire by what species of madness America submitted to accept, as her president, a person without abilities and without virtues, a being alike incapable of attracting either tenderness or esteem. Callender didn't limit his attacks to the simply professional and Adams's duties in office, he called Adams, quote, a hideous hermaphroditical character, which has neither the force and firmness of a man, nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. The book encouraged the country to vote for Jefferson, who had paid to produce the volume. Take your choice, calendar wrote, between Adams, war, and beggary, and Jefferson, peace and competency. The harangue, of course, pleased Jefferson, who wrote to Callender and said, quote, the book cannot fail to produce the best effect. Given that Adams and Jefferson had once been such friends, this was kind of extraordinary. Jefferson had once written to Adams when they were overseas, um, Jefferson in France, Adams in England, the departure of your family has left me in the dumps. Now he was helping orchestrate Adams's downfall. Calendar was, of course, delighted at the pat on the head, and he wrote that he was not done. I had once entertained the romantic hope of being able to overtake the federal government in its career of iniquity, but I am not satisfied that they can act much faster than I can write after them. The Federalists, of course, returned fire, were spreading rumors that Jefferson was an atheist from whom God-fearing would have to hide their Bibles. Quote, should the infidel Jefferson be elected to the presidency, wrote the Hudson Bee, quoting another Federalist paper, the New England Palladium. The seal of death is that moment set on our holy religion. Our churches will be prostrated, and some infamous prostitute, under the title of the goddess of reason, will preside in the sanctuaries now devoted to the Most High. The Gazette of the United States asked, The grand question stated, at the present solemn and momentous epoch, the only question to be asked by every American laying his hand on his heart is, shall I continue in allegiance to God and a religious president, or impiously declare for Jefferson and no God. Federalists charged that Jefferson had run from the Redcoats while he was governor of Virginia during the Revolutionary War. They even printed an erroneous report that he died. Eric Burns, in his book Infamous Scribblers, quotes from a correspondent to the uh, Connecticut Current who explained why it was okay (laughs) that they got it wrong. See, Jefferson was alive after all, the paper's correspondent decided, but the rumors had been offered by, quote, some compassionate being trying to cheer people up during the ugly presidential campaign and had very humanely killed Mr. Jefferson. Callender's writings were so hot, President Adams came after him. In July of 1798, Congress gave Adams a new weapon, the Sedition Act, which criminalized making false statements that were critical of the federal government. Federalists wrote the legislation in a desperate act to muzzle the Republican newspapers of the kind that Callender was uh, writing for and that had been beating the bejesus out of Adams. Republicans, of course, howled not only because it was an attack on their voices but also because it was a constitutional overreach that smacked of monarchical control. Federalists were behaving in just the high-minded manner or high-handed manner, I should say, that those Republican writers said they would, calling on wartime measures to quiet political criticism. Jefferson railed against the act as, quote, an experiment on the American mind to see how far it will bear and avowed violation of the constitution. Remember, the whole battle between the Federalists and the Democratic-Republicans is how to interpret the new constitution, how to treat it in a way that makes it endure and that keeps everybody on the rails going forward. If you misinterpret it along the way, it gets stretched out of shape. And so this was the corruption that Republicans had worried about, a Federalist president using the tools of the state to keep himself in power. Those in power would overthrow the Constitution to stay in power. This wasn't just a fight over personal ambition. And here's Jefferson writing about the stakes in the case. Quote, if if this goes down, we shall immediately see attempted another act of Congress, declaring that the president shall continue in office during life, reserving to another occasion the transfer of the succession to his heirs and the establishment of the Senate for life. The Sedition Act is considered one of the great mistakes of the early republic. Callender was the last person— prosecuted under the law, and Congress would repudiate it publicly many years later. But it is possible to see how the Federalists could get worked up enough to support such a law. Here I am defending the Sedition Act. But when you think about it, the newspaper accounts weren't just full of mean philippics that hurt people's feelings. To some, they were a danger to the entire system because they elevated partisanship over truth, self-dealing over selfless virtue. Self-dealing meaning when Jefferson's attacking Hamilton and Adams through the press, he's trying to elevate his own station. He's not worrying about maintaining a a, a virtuous government. He's basically sneakily attacking in order to elevate himself. So that's putting self-dealing over virtue, which meant the central activity at the heart of the campaign, the newspaper attacks, were essentially a poison to the presidency Uh, the campaign was being fought to fill. So... There's no way you can defend the Sedition Act, but um, as the country was taking its baby steps, the bile that was a part of this public fight was considered—you know—you could see how it was considered dangerous poison. Anyway, while it was still in effect, the, the Sedition Act seemed designed basically to capture Calendar, and on May twenty-first, eighteen hundred, it did. Exactly seven years after he'd arrived in America on the run from sedition charges uh, in England and celebrating, you could say, any old damn thing in America, Calendar's pen sent him to the pen. At the trial, the scribe faced notorious Adams partisan and Federalist Circuit Judge Samuel Chase who brought his righteous fire, to Richmond in the hopes of locking Calendar away. Judge Chase, the Aurora general advertiser, taunted, the pious and religious Judge Chase is going to Virginia where, he says, if a virtuous jury can only be collected, he'll punish Calendar with a vengeance. Chase made sure the jury was packed with local Federalists. Jefferson and the Republicans rallied to Calendar's cause. Jefferson made sure three defense attorneys were basically state's best lawyers. They were including, they included the state attorney general, and assembly clerk. They all served without pay, which indicates how seriously the the Republicans took the matter of locking up their chief scribe, but also took the matter of having a president slap an an opponent in jail. The indictment accused Calendar of defaming the president. Can any man of you say that the president is a detestable and criminal man, asked Chase, and excuse yourself by saying it, but mere opinion? Callender claimed his opinions didn't need to be backed at every turn, quote, if it shall be insisted that I aver what I have not proved, I answer that for many averments, regular proof is not required. Common report is sufficient. Chase had a pretty easy time of it. The government didn't have to prove that the seditious writings were false. Instead, the accused had to disprove the charges against him. So this was, of course, a total reversal of the principles of justice upon which the American system was based. Nevertheless, when Republican Senator John Taylor tried to argue that Adams had shown aristocratic behavior much like Calendar claimed, Chase barred Taylor's testimony because it did not precisely track Calendar's assertions. So is making opinion claims and Chase is saying... I'm going to treat these as fact claims. So, for example, if I said, you are ugly, Chase would have said, what fact proves that that person is ugly? And common opinion about the ugliness of the person you've just accused uh, was not sufficient proof that it was okay to, for you to make that claim. Calendar's lawyers tried to challenge the constitutionality of the Sedition Act before the jury, and Chase called the argument irregular and inadmissible. The Defense was not going to win, and in the end, Chase convicted and sentenced Calendar to nine months in jail and a fine of 200 bucks, asserting that Calendar in attacking Adams had made, quote, an attack upon the people themselves. Behind bars, Calendar taunted the judge. By continuing to write, he entitled one new chapter, quote, more sedition, and attacked Adams as insolent, inconstant, and quarrelsome to an extreme. Every inch which is not full is rogue. Transcripts of his trial were also published, adding to Callender's notoriety. Republicans rallied to Callender's cause as a symbol of the egregious villainy of the Sedition Act and the Federalists, who supported it. Jefferson wrote to his scribe in jail, offering sympathy and consolation for the man whose services to the public liberty he had praised. This kind of correspondence writes Callender's biographer fed into the writer's need for a father figure. His emotional mentor and acolyte connection to Jefferson deepened. The presidency and the new republic survived the test of the election of 1800. Despite the daily warfare between the two parties, power was transferred peacefully from the Federalists, who had been founded under Washington, to the Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans. But there was a wrinkle, not between the parties, but between the Republican rivals. Presidential electors were given two ballots to cast for the two candidates for president. The greatest vote-getter would become the president, and the number two finisher would be appointed to the vice presidency. Adams lost But electors who voted for Jefferson also voted for Burr, which meant in the end the two men were tied. Republicans had voted with the expectation that Jefferson would be the clear winner, and Burr had said if there were a tie, he would totally obviously step aside. I mean, of course I'm going to step aside. I mean, it's totally going to so step aside, I'm going to be beside myself, and then I'm going to be step aside even from that. Here's what he said at the time. He said, quote, it is highly improbable that I shall have an equal number of votes with Mr. Jefferson, but if such should be the result, every man who knows me ought to know that I should utterly disclaim all competition. But then when it was a tie and the election was sent into the House of Representatives, Burr didn't step aside. No, no sidestepping. House members voted repeatedly on the two men, and neither could win a majority. It took 36 ballots before Jefferson could win a majority and be declared the new president. Alexander Hamilton, his career essentially ruined, though, had helped break the deadlock because he expressed his support for his old enemy Jefferson over his even greater enemy Burr, and you remember this uh, from your Hamilton cast album. Hamilton had particular sway because the Congress that was voting to select the new president in the election of 1800, was the sitting Congress, so the Congress of 1798, and that was controlled by Federalists, not the Republican Congress, which would be sat as a result of the election of 1800, right? So it's the, it's the old Congress, essentially, and it's full of Federalists, so Hamilton has particular sway. So anyway, he told his old friend, Oliver Woolcott Jr., that Jefferson, quote, is by far not so dangerous a man. And he has pretensions to character, unquote. Those pretensions to character had not kept Jefferson from supporting the newspapers that ruined Hamilton and fought his cause at every turn, but never mind. Hamilton concluded that Burr was even worse, quote, far more cunning than wise, far more dexterous than able. In my opinion, he is inferior in real ability to Jefferson. No one was more delighted than Callender that Jefferson won the election of 1800. Hurrah, he yelped. How shall I triumph over the miscreants? How, as Othello says, shall they be damned beyond all depth? At toast to Jefferson's victory, he was celebrated. To Dame's calendar, said Captain Edward Moore, lifting a glass at Richard Price's Tavern in Albemarle County, who looks down on his persecutors with their merited contempt. As president, Jefferson immediately distanced himself from Callender. Uh, He pardoned him, along with others who'd been convicted under the Sedition Act. But Callender wanted so much more in return for all that he'd done in the election of 1800. I mean, he had, after all, savaged Adams. He'd taken Hamilton out of the picture. So he'd like that $200 fine back, and then he'd like to be postmaster of Richmond. Jefferson, who had been very chatty in the mails, suddenly stopped responding to Callender's letters. Callender, of course, got antsy quote, by the cause, I have lost five years of labor, gained 5,000 enemies, got my name inserted in 5,000 libels. I mention these particulars, as this is probably the close of my correspondence with you, that you may not suppose that I, at least, have gained anything by the victories of republicanism. This letter also received no reply, and on Sunday, April 12th 1881, Callender wrote to Madison that he was, quote, hurt, unquote, by the quote, disappointment of not having his fine repaid. I now begin to know what ingratitude is, he wrote, sounding more and more like a jilted lover. He further wrote that the president had spurned his many favors by acting, quote, to discountenance me and sacrifice me as a kind of scapegoat to political decorum and as a kind of compromise to federal feelings. Political decorum being the precursor of political correctness. With no replies from Jefferson, Callender wrote Monroe and other Republicans. I might as well have addressed a letter to Lot's wife, he complained of his unanswered notes. Mr. Jefferson has not returned one shilling of my fine. I am not a man who is either to be oppressed or plundered with impunity. It's not hard to understand why Calendar was being put in the spam folder. Jefferson and his allies didn't want to associate with someone as unpredictable as Calendar. once they were in power. They certainly didn't want to give him a patronage job. Calendar was already too well-known and too much despised to be thought worthy of public trust, and Mr. Jefferson disdained employing any person who was unworthy, wrote Meriwether Jones at the time. According to Jefferson biographer John Meacham, Jefferson wrote off-calendar because quote, rising men do not like to be reminded of the smell of the stables. Jefferson didn't want to be reminded that he'd use the low road to get to the high office. Calendar's biographer, Dury expands the claim to the entire party. Republicans were happy enough to have a writer who could stir the common passions in an election, but they didn't want to embrace the implications of the common man pitch by giving them jobs. They still wanted elites to be the one uh, who had the power when Republicans were in control. Angry that he wasn't getting the responses he wants, Callender traveled to Washington to meet with Madison. The money was refused with cold disdain, which is quite as provoking as direct insolence. Callender wrote of his request for payment. Little Madison exerted a great deal of eloquence to show that it would be improper to repay the money at Washington. The secretary of state, quote, seemed to think that he had become a sort of semi-divinity and that poor Calendar was not worthy to be his footstool. Callender may also have been desperate for the postmaster's job because he thought he might it might get him a wife. Remember that wife he wanted who would hold her tongue and make hominy? Do you know that besides his other passions, he is under the tyranny of that of love? Madison asked Monroe in a letter. The object of his flame is in Richmond. I do not ask her name, but presume her to be young and beautiful, in his eyes at least, and in a sphere above him. He has flattered himself into a persuasion that the emoluments and reputation of a post-office would obtain her in marriage. Of these recommendations, however, he is sent back in despair. Madison briefed the president all the back and forth, who dispatched Meriwether Lewis on May 28, 1801, to give Calendar 50 bucks to tide him over until the fine could be repaid in full. Calendar's attitude towards Lewis, who Jefferson would later send to explore the Northwest Territory, there are six people in America then, suggested that Jefferson might well have a larger problem than he realized. His language to Captain Lewis was very high-toned, Jefferson wrote Monroe in an account of the meeting. Calendar threatened to release letters showing that he had colluded with Jefferson in attacking Adams. He intimated that he was in possession of things which he could and would use of a certain case, that he received the $50 not as charity but as a due, in fact, as hush money. When it became clear that Jefferson was not going to name Calendar to the postmaster job, Callender left Madison and headed to the Rhodes Hotel in Washington where he got potted. Here's a description of the event. You wallowed in your own excrement while you lavished execrations on those who would not dishonor themselves by employing you, wrote publisher and future Treasury Secretary William Duane in a letter to Calendar. Senator John Taylor had warned Jefferson years before that Calendar might turn on him. Upon any disappointment of his expectations, Taylor wrote, there is no doubt in my mind, from the spirit his writings breathe, that he would yield to motives of resentment. Callender had always been motivated by revenge, and it would sober him up this time, too. He raged back to Richmond and helped establish the Richmond Recorder, dedicated to attacking Jefferson and the hypocrites in the Virginia aristocracy. So Callender took on the gamblers and the duelers and the slave owners who fathered children with their slaves and who pretended as members of the Virginia gentry that they did none of these things. And he started, slowly at first, working on Jefferson. He pointed out that the president had praised him for his writings and supported him financially. He quoted liberally from Jefferson's letters as proof of this. Hamilton's newspaper, the New York Evening Post, upon reading this, published Callender's letters and articles and accused Jefferson of inciting Calendar to expose Hamilton's affair with Mariah Reynolds. I am really mortified at the base ingratitude of Callender, wrote Jefferson to Monroe. It presents human nature in a hideous form. It gives me concern because I perceive that relief, which was afforded to him on mere motives of charity, might be viewed under the aspect of employing him as a writer. (laughs) The claim of simple charity, of course, is impossible to support, given the letters that are now public. Jefferson explained himself to Abigail Adams, who had written him to claim what she said was a personal injury, at the disclosure that he had basically supported the man who had attacked her husband so relentlessly. And Jefferson pleaded, quote, "'Nobody sooner disapproved of Callender's writings than I did.'" Which, of course, is a bracing lie. There's not one word of censure in the Jefferson and Calendar correspondence. In fact, there is encouragement and easy familiarity. Republicans in Philadelphia attacked Calendar to discredit anything he might write in the future. So now, you, this may sound familiar, but it's now the Republicans attacking Calendar, not the Federalists attacking Calendar. Dwayne wrote that Callender's wife had died from a sexually transmitted disease, quote, on a loathsome bed with a number of children, all in a state next to famishing, while Callender was having his usual pint of brandy at breakfast. This was not wise. In retaliation, Calendar went nuclear. After his disastrous meeting with Madison, Callender had written, quote, Black Sally was fluttering at my tongue's end, but with difficulty I kept it down. That was a reference to Sally Hemings, Jefferson's slave and mistress. On September 1st, 1802, Callender no longer held his tongue. It is well known that the man whom it delighteth the public to honor keeps, and for many years has kept as his concubine one of his slaves. Her name is Sally. The name of her eldest son is Tom. His features are said to bear a striking, although sable, resemblance to the president himself. By this wench, Sally, our president, has had several children. The African Venus is said to officiate as housekeeper at Monticello. Callender argued that, quote, the public had a right to be acquainted with the real characters of persons who are the possessors or the candidates of office. It was hard for Republicans who had made such use of Calendar's attacks against Hamilton to disagree. In signing off his piece, Callender let Jefferson know that he had done this to himself. Quote, when Mr. Jefferson has read this article, he will find leisure to estimate how much has been lost or gained by so many unprovoked attacks upon J.T. Callender. Unlike Alexander Hamilton, Jefferson did not answer the claims about Sally Hemings. Calendar wrote about it repeatedly and subscriptions grew, but eventually he couldn't top his blockbuster story. And then he got into an on, a big fight with the paper's publisher, which included charges that Calendar had sodomized his brother, you know, It always gets to that level. And then there were constant threats to his safety by Republicans, which put Callender more and more in a mood to drink. To be sober, said the recorder's publisher, was for Callender to be drunk only once a day, and that his normal drink would fail two men. The stories of his annex, while pickled, started to mount. According to one story, he stumbled into his host's bedchamber in the middle of the night on one trip and demanded that a servant be whipped. Jefferson's ally, Meriwether Jones, wrote in his diary, Are you not afraid, Calendar, that some avenging fire will consume your body as well as your soul? Stand aghast, thou brute, and thy deserts will yet or thee. In the end, it wasn't fire, but water that overtook him. Early in the morning of Sunday, July 17th, Calendar was observed wandering the town in a drunken stumble. Soon after, his body was found floating in the James River. He appeared to have drowned in a very shallow amount of water, a doctor... Quote, tried every method to restore him to life, but all his efforts proved ineffectual. After a brief coroner's inquest, which recorded accidental drowning while drunk, Callender was buried, and that same day in the local churchyard. As Dury writes, it was as if the citizens of Richmond could not wait to destroy all evidence of his existence. A scoundrel and a drunk James Callender has long been treated as a historical cur, but the chaos he unleashed in both parties uncovered the truth that the men of virtue who founded the country were not as virtuous as they pretended, either in their private lives or in the way they carried out their public debates. Thomas Jefferson, in particular, was willing to endorse, finance, and encourage the basest personal attacks on his rival while bemoaning the coarse nature of the public press. It was a hypocrisy that swelled until Thomas' calendar punctuated it. country moving towards popular sovereignty was destined to have more of these clashes, as the voters who read the papers were influenced and then used that influence to cast their votes. And these newspaper accounts that published the habits of the elite brought new understanding of the elite behavior to the public. Calendar also codified an important maxim of politics. If you're going to get an attack dog, keep him well-fed. That's it for Whistle Stomp for this week. There is finally that offer for Whistle Stop listeners in exchange for pre-ordering uh, the book. You'll get a bootleg edition of Whistle Stop from Labor Day in 2015. I recorded it in the closet while on vacation under a comforter. It was a look back at the campaign and a look forward. There was a problem in the production, so we couldn't run it when we wanted to. And it fell out of date and so forth. But now it's so out of date, it's historic. So uh, you will get that long bootleg copy uh, if you pre-order Whistlestop, the book, which is coming out very soon, um, go to your bookseller or go online and just make an early purchase and take a picture of the receipt or whatever. And then go to WhistleStopBook.com. That's WhistleStopBook.com and fill out the pre-order form. And we'll send you a link to that historical oddity for pre-ordering the book, which uh, is a thing we want to greatly encourage. Our producer for today's episode is Afim Shapiro. Our executive producer is Steve Liktai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. WhistleStop is a part of the Panoply network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply. Our WhistleStop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who has never been caught in Nankin pantaloons and a greasy jacket. Don't forget to check out the working podcast. For now, I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. I'll be back with you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.